from phx.fm. This is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our host for this conversation, as always, is Rabbi Michael Bayo, CEO of the East Valley JCC. Hi, Rabbi. Hello, Adrian. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. I am well, thanks. And today's conversation is a little different because you've decided that rather than bring a guest on for this one, you and I should talk to each other about our own experiences, our own spiritual journey. A lot of this is informing the conversations we've had here on the show, and it would be interesting to go maybe a little more personal than we do sometimes when we have guests. Uh, I'll start with a question for you about that, which is, you know, as someone who leads a, a very large organization that's connected to a large and diverse community, you must find yourself at times walking a thin line as a, as a leader between what's in the best interest of the people you serve, both at the JCC, right? Your the staff, the 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 various folks who are participating in programs and so on, and the broader community, uh, and then your own personal uh, thoughts, convictions, needs, and so on. Uh, get us a little bit into that world. What's it like to lead the organization you lead, and what's that like for you personally? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, and it's a very um, uh, difficult answer. Uh, because uh, it's not a direct path. Um, and I guess it's a, a lot of a trial and error. Um, there are certain things that absolutely I I do and I lead um, as, a, as the leader of this organization, as a public figure, as the rabbi um, or as a CEO here. Um, that in my private life, I deal with very differently. Um, I am, um, like, for example, um, at the J, I have a policy that uh, we don't talk politics. So this takes away a lot of the problems. <laughs> um, and, uh, but for anybody that knows me, anybody that spends some time with me, they know that, uh, um, my politics are complex and, uh, and, and you cannot summarize them in one sentence. I'm not a typical Republican. I'm not a typical Democrat. I'm not a typical liberal. I'm not a typical conservative. It's complex. I'm a complex human being. Also, I think the fact that I was not born in this country and I became an American citizen and I accepted the values of this country make me more complex uh, in my outlook because I was not raised uh, with a specific American party line. So it's definitely more complex. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. One of the things that I've thought about here for sure is, you know, for all of us that have a, a longer history, <laughs> this is the polite way of saying it, uh, you know, we're, we're older than, than the kids these days. Um, we have had many different engagements in, in different parts of the world, many different experiences. And although I think you and I, uh, I know you and I from some of our conversations come at things very differently with very different commitments and very different interpretations, 
I also know that we're able to talk about them because we're bringing this certain richness and depth and diversity of our own backgrounds. We've arrived at this point with a certain, you know, by, and we're not done evolving our, our outlook, our perspective. And yet, if, if I think about you as an immigrant, as a new citizen of the United States of America, sort of being dropped into the middle of where we are today, this would be an incredibly dislocating kind of uh, experience because there's so much rhetoric that that makes it hard sometimes to find what's underneath. You know, what where where are the foundations on which we stand and where from where we can have these kind of productive dialogues and even disagreements. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's absolutely true that it's difficult to find today people that are willing to have a conversation. People are happy having a tweet. And uh, and and they want to even some some people want to run a country based on tweets uh, or foreign policy or domestic policy based on tweets. Whether you agree with it or not, it doesn't matter. You cannot do it. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> and uh, and it doesn't matter whether I like a certain tweet or dislike a certain tweet. But the tweet mentality or the Facebook mentality where uh, you can have a conversation on Facebook. No, you can't. You cannot fully express your feelings and emotions and the depth of a conversation on Facebook. Uh, and so, or on Twitter for that matter, or TikTok. And, and I think that because we are a little bit older than than our kids and maybe because we still remember a time when we did not have these technologies and people actually got together in a coffee shop to discuss, to talk about these uh, the important matters. I think that's maybe why you and I, even though we come from different backgrounds and we also have maybe uh, uh, for sure on certain topics different political views and different understanding of what's right what's wrong what's what's even real but i think we approach it with a desire to learn from each other and that each one of us doesn't necessarily have all of the truth uh there is a wonderful quote from uh, um I remember. I think is he, he was a Christian uh, priest or or reverend uh, Ephraim um, uh, Gottlieb, if I'm not remember correctly. And he said, referring to God, if the entire truth were, if God were to offer me the entire truth in His right hand, and the perpetual quest for truth in his left hand and he were to ask me to choose which hand do I want I would humbly take the left because truth is God's alone and our goal is the perpetual quest for truth with a corollary of never really getting there and I think that we live in a society today that everybody feels that they hold the truth and and, and and it can be expressed in 72 uh, pixels or letters or, right. or, or 220 or, characters. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think there's something here that's worth uh, 
connecting to our own personal experience because I, I agree with you that the dogmatic insistence on the truth is my truth and what I speak is the truth does a real disservice, not just to society, but to thought. And anyone who has been serious about engaging in questions, whether the avenue they engaged in them was mystical or scientific or historical, critical study of texts to un unravel the mysteries within them, the interpretive mode of, and so on. The idea that you could have arrived at a simplistic answer would be deeply offensive to anyone who's devoted themselves to the inquiry. And I think one way to characterize, I don't, I don't think it's technology versus tradition in that simple way. I really do think it is, do you, do you embrace the inquiry or are you trying to shortcut it? And then when you're trying to shortcut it, we have to start talking about power relations because if if you're in, if you're an insignificant person in the grand scheme of things as by the way i would assert we all are fundamentally then that's okay at some level for you to have become convinced of your own you know uh hyperbole right but when you are leading a community a country a global conversation of any kind that this is where that becomes deeply troubling because the times in history when a large group of people have become coalesced around a single unifying idea as if it was the only truth have been some of the darkest moments of our human experience, not the brightest ones. The Enlightenment and the scientific revolution were not moments of, of simplicity and clarity where everything was reduced to a singular monadic idea. They were moments of incredible diversity of, of opinion and, and discussion and debate and the disproving of one's ideas was what was driving the enterprise. We've gotten away from that. I'm always very wary and, and in a certain sense, uh, I distance myself from people that claim to all the truth. Uh, they tend to be, as you said, History has shown us that people and, and movements uh, and groups of people that believe that they hold the truth uh, can be very dangerous. And and we have seen it, those both coming from the scientific community, the, um, the religious community, um, political communities. They, um, they come from all walks of life. So it's not, in my opinion, that certain disciplines lead you to be more monastic than others. It's just, are you willing to accept that there is so much more out there that we don't know? And as you said, that we're all at dust. Yes, I always quote, I often quote uh, Abraham, and Abraham in Genesis says that... Uh, in Hebrew, it says, I am just dust. And, uh, you know, referring that I'm nothing. I am, <laughs> I am barely here for a few years on this earth. And you have the audacity to think that you have the truth. It's like it's laughable. Yeah. It, it's really laughable. But bringing it back. So that's why I'm bringing it back to your initial question. Because and since I do not think for a moment that I hold the truth, 
a distinction or some tension that exists between my private life and how I lead the community are 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 much are much lessened because I approach everything that I do, even in my own private life, not necessarily as the ultimate truth. And there is, I am fully aware of my faults. I'm fully aware of my mistakes. And I'm fully aware that I'm not always consistent. When it comes to the community that I lead, I am a humble servant of my community. And therefore, I need to do what is right for the community, not what is right for me. And that's how I try to lead the, the JCC, uh, by looking at what I believe, together with my staff and, and the board, of what is the good for the community, whether in my own private life, I agree with it or not. You know, it's fascinating for me to hear you speak like this because it, it directly reminds me of my own childhood experiences and my father. So I was born into a, uh, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian family. Um, and my great-grandfather had been a Methodist minister. Uh, he was the kind who was like a turnaround pastor, like a turnaround CEO. He would be sent into churches, mostly uh, in the Northeast uh, Ohio and Ohio, Pennsylvania, several deeply kind of Scottish immigrant Methodist communities when a church was struggling. Either they had lost their way, the members weren't showing up, whatever. And he would whip them into shape, get them fired up again, get them pointed in the right direction, get them paying their tithe again, you know, whatever, whatever it was right. that was involved. But he was also the kind of personality that could they could only tolerate for 18 months to two years. So he would be brought in to bring the whip the church into shape and then he would move on to the next one where they had a more stable operating kind of CEO slash pastor right. to run the thing, right? Um, much like we see in business community now, startup CEO is not necessarily the, 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 the oh, temperament, yeah. right? Of somebody running a, a, an established company. Um, his son, my grandfather, was also a Methodist minister for the first part of his life, but he was more the community builder. He was the one who would, who would nurture a community and really grow the, uh, the church and grow the connections between people. And he really took that kind of nurturing pastoral role very seriously. And then his son, my dad, uh, did the same thing, but took it in, a, in an unorthodox direction. Instead of leading churches, he started a radio station in Southern California when he started it, um, two years before I was born, it was uh, one room on a college campus. The annual budget for the radio station was $3,000 for the year. And it was only on the air from 3 p.m. till 10 p.m. five days a week. You know, it was a little college radio station. But he grew that ministry. It was a Christian radio station. Over the next 35 years to being one of the largest independent nonprofit Christian radio stations in the country. It's still in existence? It's still there. He moved on. But KSGN Radio became a kind of a, a, a shining example of what's possible for growing a community and, and sharing a message and so on. But here's, so that little history aside, here's the thing that really struck me. As a boy growing up in this environment, and my family in the radio station were kind of one and the same. I mean, 
I spent as much time at the station as I did at home or at school. And then our family also had our, our own radio show starting uh, when I was five. And so we were recording a show, producing a show every week. Wow. But here's the thing. I started to observe the, the two faces of my father. The one where he put on his serving the community persona, which was very warm, charismatic. Uh, you know, he would sit down with and, and, and pray intensely with little old ladies who needed guidance and support. He was not an ordained minister, but this was a, a ministry of sorts. And then I would see my dad at home, uh, increasingly the, the philosophical skeptic, increasingly questioning the pillars of this faith that he would then put on a suit and tie and very happily kind of uh, speak from within. And as a boy, I have to tell you, this wasn't particularly heartwarming. In fact, it started to make me very cynical. I started to say, well, if this is just a costume, if this is just a mask you wear, then what's real? <laughs> what's true? And there was never any of the kind of gross abuses that we often hear about, the embezzling money, the kind of, all, you know, the prostitute, none of this kind of sordid stuff. It was really in the line with what we were talking about, this kind of crisis of belief, crisis of faith, uh, until eventually he, he left the, the radio station and um, has not had a role in public life for, this, for, the, for the last 25 years. Um, it's interesting, and then I'll share my, you know, when we get around to it, it's not about me, but my own sense of trying to find my way in a world where there was all this clarity and all of this certainty until there wasn't. And then I was left trying to make sense of it for myself. Y you must have had some things similar. I mean, obviously different in circumstances, but talk us through your trajectory from your ultra-Orthodox roots through to the, the more contemporary kind of openness that you embrace. You know, there is a quote, I think, that uh, when you look deep in the abyss, the abyss looks... Uh, looks back. Back. <laughs> I grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a household where religion was very important. And at the same time, there were a lot of tension about religion between my father and my mother. And without going into um, too much of my family history, uh, my mom and I did not always see things the same and have not had a good relationship for most of my life. And I had a very good relationship with my father. Although my father was uh, the typical medieval father figure that is all loving, but what he says is the law. <laughs> so as long as I was fine with that, it was all, it was all fine. <laughs> and he was fine for me. And because that was also a way for me to connect to my father. And that was for me also a way, maybe subconsciously, to distance myself from my mother. By, by following your dad's guidance, yes. Exactly. So I grew up in this, in this environment where religious is important. And then I, on my own, chose to be much more 
passionate about religion. And I remember that I would dedicate uh, every vacation that I had when I was still in the middle school or high school, every vacation that I had, I used to go to, uh, to, a, to a rabbinical seminary to study instead of taking vacation. Instead of going to the, I don't know, to a resort, to a beach with my parents or vacation, no, I would go to study more. Uh, and I was passionate about studying and, and, and wanting to, to learn more, wanting, wanting um, to connect with God. Reflecting back on that, how, how much would you say, and I'm sure there's some of both, how much was driven by that inquiry, that desire for connection with God? And how much was driven by the, the, the fact that this was an accepted way out of your family dynamic. If you were going there, it was okay that you stepped out of the family and you didn't have to experience some of the unpleasantness that you might have been experiencing. Uh, it was not so much stepping out of the family. It was, it was like a shield that I could use and that I was using to protect myself from my mom. Because by being more observant and more religious, I had the protection of my father. You know, it's fascinating. In a very different milieu, I had a similar thing with the radio station. I actually was able to use it as the shield because I, I had been working there since I was 14. But then when I was 16 and could have a full independent employee position, I took the weekend shifts at the radio station. So I had to be there instead of going to church with the family. I was actually at work. But it was at the radio station where I had to broadcast live church services from a number of different locations and so on. So it was okay with my mother that I wasn't with them because after all, I was still there. But it was, my, it was absolutely a shield yeah. for me. It was how I started to separate myself from the expectation yeah. that I had to be with them at church, which at that point I was no longer willing to do. Yeah, I, I needed that shield from my mom because my mom was... Um um, and she still is uh, not well. And she, I grew up in an abusive, um, physical, emotional, mentally uh, abusive uh, environment. And it's very difficult to, to grow up like that. And so in a way, religion became my escape. And, and it was easy because we were living in a very religious, ultra-Orthodox environment where all my friends came from even more observant families than we were. So absolutely religion became my escape. I remember that um, when I, I, I went to, to this high school, which was a Jewish high school, but not a religious high school. But every day after high school, I would study with my rabbi for three or four hours every day. And that was awesome because I, that mean that I did not need to go home. And when school ended, I went to study more because going home meant being home with my mom. And that was something that I was trying to avoid yeah. as much as possible. And so as soon as I could, which was uh, when I was about 15 years old, I left 
I left home to go to study in a rabbinical seminary. Now, if you ask me now to go back in time and tell and, and ask how much was that to escape the family dynamics or how much was that my true conviction, it's difficult to go back in time and say, you know, 50-50, 70-60, whatever. But at a time, absolutely, I was fully embedded in what it's called ultra-orthodoxy. Um, and I believed in it wholeheartedly. And, uh, and not only in ultra-orthodoxy, I was embedded in a Hasidic group called Chabad, Lubavitch, which are even today are one of the most prominent uh, Hasidic groups in the world. They do a lot of outreach to other Jews to uh, engage them into what they believe is the true path of Judaism. And I was wholeheartedly embedded in that. That was my life. That was what I wanted. That was what I believed. And anybody that was not like me was wrong. Isn't it interesting that we started this conversation with reflecting on the dogmatic nature of discourse in contemporary politics and how uncomfortable we both are now with those who insist on the truth of their of their framework yeah and and yet how much that was a part of your life uh mine too but i was watching other people do it i didn't myself follow down that path i peeled off a little earlier in the trajectory um but very much aware i mean seventh day adventism is a missionary tradition within the protestant family if you will it's one of several uh so there were adventists all over the world um now, they're not the door-knocking kind, pamphlet kind. They conduct their missionary outreach through two primary avenues, education and healthcare. So there are often Adventist hospitals or clinics uh, in many parts of the world where they're serving underserved communities, which, by the way, that's great. Sure. I mean, I certainly got from that ex exposure early in my life a lot of what then guided me later in my own humanitarian activities. But it's, it is connected to this idea that there is one truth, we have it. And at some point, if you want to be saved in the parlance of Christianity, you will need to have it too. You yeah. will need to embrace this point of view or you will not in fact be saved. And while they're not as hellfire and brimstone about it as some of the other Protestants, the implicit underpinnings are still there. Like you're not going to end up in the good place. You're going to end up in the bad place is the basic framework. Yeah. So I am now 15 years old. I am uh, learning in a rabbinical seminary in London. And I love it. I love it. It's, I am taking it all in. I am embracing it. I am like, ah, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful until it stops being wonderful. Before we get to that, take us into that scene for a minute. So you're 15 years old. You're living in a, a city far away from your family. What are the conditions you're living in? Who's around you? Are you with other young men? So I am in a, in a, I am in a rabbinical seminary. 
it's a wonderful, nice, uh, you know, relatively nice. I mean, it's not a you know, it's not a five star hotel, but it's a nice uh, dorm, nice uh, facilities. I have, uh, you know, it's uh, there is the dorm. We we were about, I think, we were about forty students uh, in two. Uh, two different classes. It was the first year and the second year. And then there were some other older guys that they were there uh, as well. Um, and um, we had uh, three three rabbis. There was the head rabbi and then two other uh, main rabbis. Um, and, you know, we would, we would wake up in the morning around, I believe, seven uh go we would go to the mikveh every day that's the ritual bath uh ritual immersion in 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 a, in a in a purifying bath every morning and then we would study for about an hour uh, mystical teachings and hasidic teachings then we would pray then it was a breakfast and then we would study for a few hours uh, the talmud uh, then uh, we would have breakfast, lunch, uh, I believe like maybe like another hour of free time. And then we would come back and study uh, more Talmud. And then we would study Jewish uh, Jewish law. Um, and then would be dinner and then uh, evening prayers. And then in the evening, we would study more Hasidic teachings and mystical teachings. And that would go on until, uh, I would say, roughly, I don't know, nine, nine o'clock at night, something like that. Um, yeah. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Once a week then, because Chabad is an intra-Jewish missionary um group uh on friday um in pairs of two we would go on different parts of the city to find jewish people either in the streets or businesses where we would go and we would talk to them a little bit about judaism ask them if they wanted to wear the philactor the tefillin and try to lead them little by little to accept to do a mitzvah, uh, you know, either lighting Shabbat candles or observing uh, uh, the laws of kosher or taking on some elements of Shabbat, etc., etc. You know, this uh, this going out in the streets, and uh, and I remember they even standing in the street and asking people, "Excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? Uh, would you like to wear the tefillin?" And like you know, people say yes, no, whatever. You know, it's it was it was an experience. Absolutely, it was a full, full experience. In part two of this conversation, let's pick up here because you've hinted at something coming in the narrative that uh, everything is wonderful until it isn't. So when we resume this conversation, we'll pick up with the story of how this exuberant, immersive experience you were having as a fifteen-year-old led to what's next. Perfect. Thank you very much, Adrian. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at phx.fm, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening. 
and please join us for the next conversation with the rabbi.